Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like him. After this, I looked, and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language, which no one could number, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who is seated on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and along with the elders and the four living creatures, they fell face down before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessed and glory and wisdom. Blessings and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, Who are these people in white robes and where did they come from? I said to him, Sir, you know. Then he told me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. The one seated on the throne will shelter them. They will no longer hunger. They will no longer thirst. The sun will no longer strike them, nor will any scorching heat. For the lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Praise be to God. Woo! I hope you're ready to get into the thick of it. And it's a good thing we had that Easter break because we are really getting into the sticky of Revelation now. And uh, it's going to be a wild ride. It's going to be a really crazy crash course too because we're covering like two or three chapters every week for like the next seven or eight weeks. And then we're going to finish up. But we're doing this in broad strokes. And here's why. We're going to cover Revelation in broad strokes because if we start getting into every tiny verse and every little thing, then we get into all the crazy different interpretations and we're going to get in the weeds and we're going to get stuck and there's going to be like 17 different meanings for every little thing. But if we cover it in broad strokes, then we can really see the overarching theme of Revelation and we can kind of pull out the large stuff that God wants because I think sometimes when we approach this kind of stuff in the Bible, we get mired in the in the minutia and in the icky little tiny little things and we miss the big picture of God's glory and God's plan and that's where we want to stay because that's the encouraging stuff so today again in the thick of it we're covering like the four horsemen of the apocalypse okay we're covering the first seven seals these are the first of the visions of revelation it's going to be it's going to be a wild ride so uh, let's let's jump into it here though during world war one H.G. Wells wrote a number of pamphlets. And and in these pamphlets, H.G. Wells referred to the war, the Great War, the First World War, as the war to end war. And he wrote so many of these pamphlets that eventually he, he compiled them into kind of a book that he titled The War to End War. And that's really how he and, and so many people saw World War I. This was such a huge conflict. This was such a major war that how could anyone want to engage in war after seeing this? It was the bloodiest, most evil conflict the world as a whole had seen in a very long time. And there were so many different groups of people engaged and involved in this conflict that, that there was just no way of conceiving of anything worse than World War I. 
And yet we know what happened, right? World War I ended, and it wasn't the war to end wars. It wasn't the war to end war at all. In fact, only 25 years later or so, we enter into World War II, which in scope and scale was magnitudes larger than World War I in terms of the loss of life. And so people began to use that phrase from H.G. Wells, the war to end war, as a pejorative, as, as a, a kind of put down. They used it ironically, as though World War II were now the war to end war. But, but people knew that war wouldn't end because only a few years after World War II ended, we find ourselves in the Korean War. And then you've got Vietnam. And you have all kinds of minor conflicts happening all over the world that we, don't even, we aren't even aware of today. And war continues. After Vietnam, you've got the Gulf. And then from the Gulf, you've got, got you get, you're going back into the Gulf in the early 2000s. And, and we're still there today. War and conflict have continued on throughout human history. In fact, human history is really just one big cycle of conquest and war. And it's funny because the, the, the good guys in every war, however you reckon the good guys in every war, what they're really seeking is peace. What the people in war, what the people who are, who are engaging in this conflict, at least one side just wants peace, but they have to stand up to some aggressor in order to find some kind of peace. And what we have learned over and over countless times throughout history is that war will never end in peace. War cannot produce peace. There was this great song on this album, Mockingbird, uh, by Derek Webb back in the early 2000s. Uh, and, and one of the lines, it, he didn't originate the line, but I like the way he put it. Um, the line goes, peace by way of war is like purity by way of fornication. You can't do it. You can't get there. War will never end in peace. War begets conflict. Violence begets violence. Conflict begets conflict. And so we, we're always looking for the ultimate end to it. We're looking for the ultimate end to conflict because we realize that the unjustness of war itself, even when one side seems to be more righteous than the other, the conflict itself, the war, the violence, the, the, all of it is unjust. The innocent die. People's lives are crushed and destroyed. Cities are wiped out. Today, you can go to the city of Damascus, one of the oldest continuously occupied cities in all of the world. And it was once this beautiful, amazing place. And today, it lies mostly in rubble and ruin because of war and conflict. And there's no end in sight to the conflict in Syria. War will never win. War will never create peace. And that's what the scriptures are telling us today. That's what this text in Revelation is all about. Now look, we may have 17 different interpretations of the text that we're going to look at today, of the lamb opening the seven seals here in Revelation. And if that may even be confusing to you as I use that language. But like I said, we're covering this in broad strokes. And, and I, I think that the most responsible way to approach this text, the most responsible way to approach what we're going to enter into today is to see in it a cycle of human history. And so here we are. We have been in Revelation. We've kind of covered these, these letters that Jesus wrote to these seven churches in modern-day Turkey, in Asia Minor of old. 
These seven letters that he wrote addressing their particular situations. And then after that, the Apostle John, who is writing this, is taken into heaven. He's given this vision of the throne of God. And there's the throne in the center of this crazy menagerie of angelic beings being worshipped all the time. And the person on the throne is so bright, you can't even make out who he is. And the person on the throne is holding a scroll that has seven seals around it. And John sees this scroll, and I think this scroll is God's will and plan for human history. And there's no one who can open this scroll, because after all, it was authored by God. And someone of equal authority has to open the scroll to reveal the contents of it. But there's no one on a par with God. There's no one equal with God to open this scroll. And then in chapter 5 of Revelation, we see this, this creature come forward that looks like a lamb that's been slaughtered. A lamb that's been killed, a bloody lamb steps forward, and this person has the authority to open the scroll that was written by God. Which in the context just says, this is, this is God, this is God as a slaughtered lamb now, taking this scroll, this will of God for human history, and he begins to break open those seven seals. And as he breaks open those seven seals, things start happening on the earth. So that's where we are. I realize that's kind of confusing, but that's what it's supposed to be. It's a vision. It's weird, man. And so the lamb starts opening these seven seals, and that's where we are in chapter 6. He, he opens the first seal, and then one of the four creatures that's around the throne of God, remember I told you there's this crazy menagerie of angelic beings who are surrounding God and worshiping him. Well, four of them are weirder than all the rest, and they're like these weird mashups of, of animals and people and eyes and wings, and it's very strange. But what you need to know is that as the lamb opens this first seal, one of those creatures says, come. And as the creature says, come forth, we see a white horse and a rider on that horse come forward. And the rider is given a crown and a bow and sets out to conquer the world. And this writer is representative of conquest, of human conquest, of the empires of the world. Remember, at this time, the Roman Empire is the known world. If you're a Roman citizen, you think Rome is it. Rome is the world, and Rome has conquered everybody else. So if you're a Roman citizen or you're living in the Roman Empire, especially if you're not a Roman citizen living in the Roman Empire under its thumb, then you see in this white writer... In this conquest writer, you see Rome. You see the conqueror. You see the oppressor. And so the first seal is open and the oppressor, the conqueror, comes in. And then the second seal is open. The lamb opens the second seal. And one of those other weird creatures around the throne says, Come! And this red horse comes in with a rider on it. And the rider is given this monstrous sword with which to wage war on the earth. And then the third seal is open. And the third creature says, Come! And a black rider comes, a black horse with a rider comes, and we're told that this is, this is famine. It doesn't say that explicitly, but it talks about the cost of barley and of wheat. Barley and wheat are now astronomically expensive. The normal person couldn't afford the day's uh, wheat, the day's barley. And so they, they can't even afford to eat. So famine has now struck the land. And then finally, we see the fourth seal broken. And the fourth creature around the throne says, Come! And we see a pale green horse come forward. And this horse represents death. And Hades, the realm of the dead. And we're told that this horse has the authority to take the lives of one quarter of the world's population. 
And we could read so much into this. We could read so much into, and, and people have interpreted and read into them everything you can possibly imagine. But I think if we're being responsible and we're just staying true to the context, I think that one of these things flows right after the other. When an empire goes up to make conquest on the earth, how do they do it? They do it through war and conflict. And what inevitably follows war and conflict? Famine. Loss of of food, loss of goods, the skyrocketing price of normal everyday staples. And what inevitably follows after that? Disease. When you're malnourished and you can't be fed, disease follows after. And so we see these four horses, they're they're just the natural consequences one after another of conquest and of war and then famine and then inevitably death. And that quarter of a population is just to say, So many people die as a result of conquest and war and famine. A quarter of the population is just an astronomical number of people to lose their lives to the cycle of human violence. And I think as the lamb is is opening these seals on the scroll and we're seeing these horses come forward, what we're seeing is the inevitable cycle of human history. Because isn't this the story of human history? I mean, that sounds really cynical, doesn't it? That sounds really pessimistic, but it is kind of the story of human history. We are a warring species. We are a power-driven, conquest-driven people. We want our own, and we want to rule, and we want to run. Even when we think we're right, even when we think we're in the right, and we're good, and we're righteous, just ask the people that we're subduing if they think we are. Ask the people of Puerto Rico who feel like they live in a colony if the United States is really a great savior. I'm sorry if that offends you. But when you're a colonized people, you don't see the mainland in the same way as we do. When you're a colonized, conquered people, you don't see the ruling government. You don't see the empire the same way everybody else does. And so history is really just a matter of perspective. So regardless of who you think is in the right and who you think is in the wrong, human history has been this long cycle of conquest and of fights over power and inevitably then of suffering and of death. This is the story of humanity. We're a people bent on power, longing for suffering. And when that happens, when the suffering happens, when the power mongers get into control and they move in conquest and they bring war and they bring famine and they bring death, inevitably the church suffers. Inevitably followers of Jesus suffer. We saw this happen in the very life of Jesus. Jesus was seen as a rebel. Jesus was seen as one who was going to stand against Rome. Rome was afraid that Jesus would rise up with his followers and lead rebellion against them. Jesus, in all of his meekness, in all of his mildness, in all of his talk of love and of grace, in all of Jesus' demeanor, yet the power brokers were threatened by him. They were afraid of him because he represented a system of power, he represented a way of life that they didn't recognize. They don't know how to handle this guy. They don't know how to handle these people. And when the church is true to Jesus Christ, when we follow in his way of life, when we follow in the way that he's called us to live, when we follow Jesus in the way that he's called us, when we follow in his way of life, the power systems of the world don't know how to handle the church. They don't know what to do with us. And inevitably, that causes them to strike in violence against the followers of Jesus. And that's what we see happen in the fifth seal. 
when the lamb breaks open the fifth seal, we see the martyrs. We see the people who have stood in their faith for Jesus Christ and have lost their lives for it. We see them in heaven crying out to the Lord, crying out to Jesus, when will it be over? When will the suffering end? When will this cycle of war and violence and death be done, Lord? They're brokenhearted. Now, these have already lost their lives. They're already in heaven enjoying the presence of God. They have nothing more to worry about for themselves, but they are ultimately concerned about God's people on the earth, God's people who still suffer. Their hearts break for their brothers and sisters who are not part of this warring system, but are victims of it. Because they won't partake in the, in the machinery of warfare. They won't partake in the system of violence of the world. They won't enter into the same kind of power struggles that lead to all of this suffering in the world. The church won't do it because we follow a crucified king. We follow a king who gained his crown by dying and rising again. We don't fit within the power structures of the world, which often means we'll suffer. The church will suffer. Jesus himself promised this. In the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning, he said, don't be surprised when people stand opposed to you because you follow me. I don't fit into their system. I don't live the way that they live. And so here in the fifth seal, we see the martyrs, those who have lost their lives in this system of violence, in this cycle of violence, as they stood for Jesus, crying out for their brothers and sisters on earth, when will the violence end? And here Jesus replies to them. God responds to them. So they're each given a white right, right robe and they were told to rest a little while longer until the number would be completed of their fellow servants and their brothers and sisters who are going to be killed just as they had been. So God's response to his martyrs, God's response to his people who have suffered and died on his behalf is just wait a little bit longer. And this is really, this is God saying there will be an end. Don't worry yourself. There will be an end to the suffering. Unfortunately, more will suffer before the end comes. More will lose their lives. More will end up here with you, fellow martyrs. But wait, be patient. In a little while, in a, in a time, God will bring an end to that cycle of violence. In a little while, God will bring an end to the cycle of war. Just be patient, my children. That's what's happening. First Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19, Peter asks, uh, Peter says, don't be surprised. Don't, don't be taken off guard when you suffer. Because Christian, when you suffer, you suffer in like manner to Jesus. You are being honored as Jesus was honored when you suffer for his sake. And so endure your suffering with patience and forbearance, knowing that Jesus has the final word. And that's what Jesus is saying to his martyrs here. That's what he's saying to his people here in this fifth seal. As they cry out for justice, as they cry out for an end to the cycle of violence, Jesus is saying to them, patiently endure. There will be an end. And that's where we leave it. And, and if, we, if we stopped there, honestly, I wouldn't want to heed these words of Jesus. 
Right? If that were the last seal and that were the last word of God, I'd be like, yeah, right, okay. I'm going to go talk. I'm going to go follow somebody else. I'm going to go follow somebody who can actually do something because you're just telling me to wait and forbear, but you're not giving me any hope here. Thank God there's a sixth seal. Then the lamb opens the sixth seal and craziness starts happening. Right? There's this giant earthquake and the moon turns to blood and the sun is darkened and the wind is blowing and the sky is split apart like a scroll and every mountain and island is moved from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the nobles, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and every slave and free person hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb because the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? Oh, thank God for this. I know that language is scary. But if you're a follower of Jesus, if you are one whose allegiance is given to King Jesus and not to the kingdoms of the world, if you're living outside of this warring, conflict, violence-driven power structure of the world because you're following the crucified lamb, then you are in good shape. You can endure this. Because this judgment that is coming of Jesus is coming on the nations of the world. It's coming on that very power structure that perpetuates the cycle of conquest and war and famine and death. This Sixth seal is nothing short of the return of Jesus himself. Now, how do I know that? Because the language mirrors almost exactly what Jesus said would happen when he returns back in Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24, in what's called the, Mount, uh, the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's describing what it's going to be like when he comes back and he uses language that is almost exactly the same as this. Furthermore, when Jesus uses that language in Matthew 24, he's actually quoting the prophet Joel in the Old Testament. The prophet Joel in Joel 2 and 3 wrote about the great day of the Lord. Now, if you're a good Jew, if you're a good Jewish person, you want the day of the Lord to come more than anything else. You desperately want the day of the Lord because the day of the Lord is the day that God will finally judge all the wicked nations of the world. It's the day when God will finally come back intervene on his people's behalf, save them, and judge all of the nations of the world and end the war and the struggle and the strife. He will set up his people for an eternity of blessedness. This is what the day of the Lord is. So when Jesus quotes Joel in Matthew 24, as he's talking about his own return, what he's saying is, when I come back, that's the day of the Lord. When I come back, that's the day that the nations will be judged. That's the day that my people will be vindicated. That's the day you can look forward to. That's what you should be longing for more than anything. So now here in Revelation chapter 6, when we read this sixth seal is broken, and the language is almost exactly the same as Jesus in Matthew 24 and Joel in Joel 2 and 3, we know that this is the day of the Lord. Jesus' response to the suffering of his people, Jesus' response to the people who have lost their lives standing in faith for him is, I will come to judge. I will come and make things right. Do not worry yourself. You have victory. Whether you die in suffering now or you see the day of the Lord coming, I win. And if you're with me, Jesus says, you win too. 
If you're with me, then you are one of the judges. If you're with me, you're one of the vindicated. If you're with me, then you have nothing to worry about in that day of the Lord to come. When Jesus comes back and finally brings judgment on all of the wickedness of the world. And so Jesus is calling to his people to be patient, not simply for the sake of patience. He's calling on them to patiently endure, not simply for the sake of endurance. Jesus is not calling on his people to be nonviolent in the face of violence simply for their own good. He's calling them to that posture. He's calling them to peace and to patient endurance through suffering because he will come back and bring the judgment that his people long for. The great theologian Miroslav Volf writes on this in a book called Exclusion and Embrace. And he says, nonviolence on the earth, that is, that is bearing with suffering on earth, bearing with, with trouble and difficulty and struggle and war on earth, can only be viable if we believe that God will come in judgment of the nations. That Jesus will actually come back and judge and destroy the evil, wicked nations of the world. We can only endure suffering and pain and trial patiently if we know that our God actually will bring judgment upon the violence of the world. That's the only way we can patiently endure. And that's what we're seeing here. In the fifth seal, the martyrs cry out for justice. They cry out for judgment on the wickedness of the world. And in the sixth seal, Jesus says, here it is. Here's my judgment on the earth. Here's my judgment on the wickedness of the nation. Here I am finally coming to end the cycle of war and violence that is perpetuated through human history. Here I come. Rely on me. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, not yours. And it's only by trusting in the good and right judgment of our God that we can patiently endure suffering in the here and now. Now, between the sixth and seventh seals, we've got this long interlude, all of chapter seven. We've got this long interlude. And here's what's happening. In chapter seven, we're kind of backtracking a little bit. Okay? In chapter, these things are not happening chronologically. Remember, this is all like symbolic, right? This is all symbolism. So we're not moving in a chronology here. Chapter seven is actually taking place during the sixth seal, it's taking place during the judgment of Jesus. And and Jesus says, or John says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, restraining the four winds of the earth, so that no wind could blow on the earth, or on the sea, or on any tree. Now, do you remember, when Jesus was talking about his coming back, he said, the gospel must be proclaimed among all nations, among all people. Well, here in Revelation chapter 7, we see these four angels holding back the winds, until the people of God can be sealed. Track with me here, okay? The four angels are holding back the judgment of God. They're holding back all of this craziness that's happening at the return of Jesus, these earthquakes and the the moon turning to blood and the sun being darkened and the wind and all that stuff. They're holding back the judgment of God until all of the people of God can be sealed. That means that they're confirmed as belonging to him. What Jesus is saying in in chapter 7, what what God is saying to us here in chapter 7 is that, look, Jesus is waiting to come back so that as many people as possible can know him when he does. He's holding back, not 
in, not in punishment of his people, not to make us suffer longer, not to make us have to deal with the, the difficulties of the world longer, not because he doesn't love us. Jesus holds back in mercy. He holds back in grace. So that in the meantime, we can share his gospel, we can share his good news to the ends of the earth, and as many people as possible can come to know him. Why? Why? Well, this only works if we're not universalists. This only works if we actually believe that you have to follow Jesus in order to escape his judgment. That you must belong to him. That all of you must be in allegiance to him and not in allegiance to the powers of the world in order to escape his judgment. Jesus tarries, Jesus waits, Jesus doesn't come back so that we can get out there and get busy about telling him about people about his goodness. So we can get out there and get busy about telling people about the goodness and the grace of our God, calling them to repentance, calling them to put their faith and their allegiance, not in the systems of the world and in the violence and in the war and in the power mongering, but in the crucified, risen Lord Jesus Christ so that they can escape the judgment at the end. And so chapter 7 is a comfort to the people who are still enduring on the earth. Chapter 7 is a comfort to Jesus' people in the world. To say, Jesus is waiting. Jesus is waiting so that more people can come to know him and follow him and be allied to him. That's what these numbers are about in Revelation chapter 7. Where there's 144,000 sealed, 12,000 from each tribe. Those numbers, again, symbolic, okay? If anybody ever tells you, like, there are going to be 144,000 Jewish people saved by Jesus, that's, that's nonsense, right? If somebody tells you, like, there's only 144,000 who are going to be, like, the leaders in heaven, and then the rest of us are kind of peons, that's, that's not really true either, okay? These numbers are symbolic for the whole people of God. Twelve represents completeness. It's the number of the tribes of Israel. It's the number of the patriarchs of Israel. It's the number of the apostles of the church. It's the number of the leadership. And it's there to represent all of the people of God. God is saying, I'm waiting for all the people I've called to myself to come before I return and judge the world. Because once Jesus returns in judgment, that's it. There's no more opportunity. There's no more chance. We look forward to the coming of Jesus, but we got to understand what that means. The moment Jesus returns, the hope for everybody who doesn't follow him is done. It's over. It's gone. And I don't have any joy in that. None of us should. But it should move us. It should move us to the urgency of sharing the gospel message, the good news of Jesus, the good news of salvation through him, the good news that he is a king who welcomes absolutely anybody into his kingdom. All they have to do is come and repent of their sin and belong to him. And so Jesus is restraining and he's holding back and he's waiting to come and judge the nations because he knows that the moment he does that, hope is gone for the world. There's no more left. And so be comforted, people. And then we come to the text that, Jesus, that Terry read for us, where John is there and he's got one of the elders. It's one of these, one of these menagerie around the throne of God. And the elder asks John, who do you think these people are? These people dressed in white robes who were singing God's praises. And he says that they're everybody. It says everybody who lost their lives during the Great Tribulation. Now, I don't believe in like a seven-year tribulation before Jesus comes back. I don't get into all that jazz. I think he's talking about all of the time from Jesus rising again until his coming again. These are all days of tribulation. They're all days of violence. They're all days of difficulty. And so 
John is now looking out on this vast crowd of people who have lost their lives in all the span of time between Jesus' resurrection and his second coming. And they're singing praise. And they're dressed in white robes. And they're honoring the Lamb. And we read here that in that day, that the Lamb will wipe away every tear from their eyes. He'll guide them to springs of the waters of life. This is the future for everybody who follows Jesus. The future for those who have allied themselves to the power systems of the world, who have allied themselves to earthly nations, those, the, the future for those who want to belong to the world and want to engage with the world on its own terms and in its own power and, and who perpetuate this violence and this war and this conquest, the future for them is the same as all the nations of the world under the judgment of the Lamb. But the future for those who follow Jesus who give their allegiance to King Jesus, who repent of their sin and, and have faith in him, the, the future for them is eternal comfort and peace in his presence where he will wipe away their tears. He will bring them comfort and joy for all eternity. And that's the future we get to look for. That's the future we get to rest on. And that's our hope. Remember, Jesus said, don't fear the one who can destroy the body, but fear the one who can destroy body and soul. Jesus is saying, don't, don't be afraid of the systems of the world. Don't be afraid of the governments of the world. Don't be afraid of the systems. Don't be afraid of the people who would persecute you or put you down because your hope is secure. Whether you lose your life in martyrdom here and now or you live to see Jesus come back, you win if you belong to him because Jesus has already won. Jesus wins. And it's only in hitching our wagon to his that we win too. But the good news is we don't have to do anything for that. All we have to do is say, yes, Jesus, I'm yours. Yes, I want to follow you. We don't have to build that up. We don't have to make ourselves good enough. We don't have to make ourselves righteous enough. We don't have to earn our way into his presence or into his good graces. He's poured it out freely on us. So today is the day to dedicate yourself to Jesus Christ. Today is the day to lay down your sin, to lay down your rebellion and to say, yes, Jesus, I want to belong to you. When you come back, I want to be one of yours. I want this future, this eternal future of comfort and of peace and of joy in your presence. I do want to escape the judgment of the world. I don't want to be allied and give my allegiance to these evil power structures and to this system of conquest and war and violence. I want to belong to the crucified lamb. I want to belong to the one who conquered death in the cross and in the empty tomb. I want to belong to you, Jesus, more than anything. I want to love as you love. I want to follow in your footsteps and live as you lived and as you now live. Jesus, be my king. That's who we want to be. That's who you want to be. In the day that Jesus returns, that's the person you want to be. The one whose full allegiance and full life is given over to the one who laid his life down for you. The one who left the tomb empty so that you could be resurrected too. And if you're already a follower of him, if you're already with him, if you've already given Jesus your allegiance, then it's time to go share that truth with everybody else. Because the moment Jesus returns, there's no hope anymore. It's time to reclaim the joy of knowing our future is secure in Jesus Christ so that we can enjoy, share that with others. Not in judgment, not in insult, not in giving offense, but simply in sharing the truth and the goodness of the grace of our God who laid down his life for you and left the tomb empty for you so you can experience his resurrection life. There is so much joy in following Jesus. 
And I only want you to experience that too and to know that your eternal future is secure in him. That's what this chapter is about. Not about scaring you, but about presenting with us the joy of knowing our King Jesus and the security of our eternal future. That's what the silence in heaven on the seventh seal is about. It's in awe of who Jesus is. It's in awe of all that he has done. Even heaven stands in silence at the foot of the Lamb of God. Even heaven stands in silence at the glory of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And I pray today that you stand in awe of Jesus and all that he has done for you and for me. Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you for these chapters that, God, seem so scary, that seem so hard. And yet, Lord, I pray that we find hope in them. I pray that we can find hope in our eternal, secure future with you, Jesus, our good and righteous King. Thank you, Lord, that you took our death and you have risen again in order to raise us to new life. And God, as we look forward, God, to the judgment that the Jesus will bring upon the wickedness of the world, upon the nations of the world, upon this violent system of the world. I pray, Lord, that we are people who follow in the footsteps of our crucified King, seeking peace in all things and looking forward to the peace that you one day will bring, letting all of our hope rest in you. Thank you, God. Thank you for all that you have done, and thank you for the future that you have promised and secured through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.